This is Ross Coulthard, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and continuing the series where I talk to prominent individuals from various areas of the UFO field, I am delighted to welcome a first-time guest to the podcast, someone I've wanted to speak to for quite some time, retired US Navy Lieutenant Commander Alex Dietrich. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, Alex, this is about the only time my wife has ever been interested in a guest I've had on because she watched you on UK Breakfast TV last year and she was over the moon. There was a female voice talking about UFOs or UAP and she thought you came across incredibly well. So this might be one of the first times she listens back to a full show. So I'm excited for that. So I'll have to watch what I say. What's her name? Her name's Susan. Hi, Susan. Yeah, uh, yeah. We definitely sure. need to get more diverse voices. Uh, yeah, and do you know what? Topic. I was going to ask you that second, Alex. And before you give a brief intro, um, actually, no, I'll, I'll come to that second. I think that'll make more sense. Now, uh, before we get to talking about the hearing, the reactions to that, which have just happened in the last week or so, your story has been told a thousand times, and I'm sure you get to the point of saturation with it. Uh, but, but for anyone unfamiliar, do you mind just sharing a little bit of background on yourself and also touching on that, I suppose, now infamous experience from 2004? Sure. So I recently retired from the Navy, the U.S. Navy, uh, as a strike fighter pilot uh, after a 20-year career. Uh, my designator was was as a naval aviator. And when I was fresh out of flight school in 2004, uh, I reported to my first fleet squadron, which was VFA-41, the strike fighter uh, squadron Black Aces out of Lemoore, California. That's where our hangars and our aircraft were, were stationed, but we flew off of an aircraft carrier that was based out of San Diego. So in the fall of 2004, we were conducting integration exercises and training missions off the coast of San Diego, getting ready to go deploy uh, when we we were vectored off of our training area to go and intercept uh, a real world unknown uh, something that was operating in our airspace. And um, that's when we encountered this UAP, this unknown aerial phenomenon, UFO. And now, of course, your part in that story almost ends there for, for some time as Commander Fravor took over. He has the now infamous interaction with the Tic Tac. And here we are now. Let's jump forward to 2023. Um, we've now had hearings on UFOs, UAP. I'm going to stop saying both. They're UFOs and people like me to say UFOs, okay? Because that's that's what we're talking about, essentially. Um, July 2023, only in the last few days, public hearings have taken place. What were your initial thoughts when you heard there was going to be public hearings happening on this topic in the first place? So I don't really, I don't have thoughts <laughs> really on it. Um, I'm not as emotional or invested as I think a lot of people are in this topic. Uh, I was an eyewitness to something strange uh, on November 14, 2004 with my colleagues and the other radar operators and folks uh, as Part of that carrier strike group, but it's not something that I think about a lot. It's not something that I investigate or, or spend a lot of time. I, I don't listen to podcasts or read books about UFOs. Lucky you. Uh, yeah, 
but of course, you know, I've been unwittingly sort of drug into the middle of this. And uh, I, I was aware that there were hearings, I think about a week prior, I uh, kind of put out a, a flare and said, am I going to be called to testify? Because if so, I need to make plans. I've got a kid going to camp and <laughs> a doctor's appointment that I need to reschedule. Um, so, you know, when I get these requests to do interviews and when I get asked to speak about it, uh, I, I try to say yes when I am, am available, when I have some bandwidth, uh, because I think it's important to not necessarily highlight what it was that we saw or try to figure out what it was that we saw, but to highlight that there was an inadequate process to report and investigate in the moment uh, that the fact that there was something that we couldn't identify operating within this military exercise operating so close to San Diego, a dense population center, so soon after 9-11. So, you know, if if anything, my hope is that the hearings and the attention, uh, whether through specific uh, sort of niche podcasts like yours or the mainstream media, will draw attention to the fact that we need to have resources funding, staffing, and capabilities in place so that if and when future pilots or future operators uh, speak up and say, hey, there's something weird here, we have a way to zoom in and to investigate, to collect that information, get good hard data, and analyze it in a way that turns it from UAP or UFO, uh, from unidentified into known. Uh, and whether that's an adversary or whether that's uh, some other explanation, um, really that's the key here is getting to the the root cause of whatever we're seeing. That lack of process is something that's been highlighted many times and lack of, you know, straight reporting procedures. Laymans like myself who have no idea about the military, but I can understand on a base level how difficult it must be just to to get something like that one taken seriously, but then reported up a chain of command, if, that, if that's the right kind of terminology. People like yourself uh, and David Fravor have made huge inroads to changing those stigmas and processes and others, no doubt, whose names aren't even in the public domain yet. I remember on the the 60-minute piece, Alex, when when you spoke, um, and I was just re-watching it back before, you said, and you were very much right to, that you you had to be careful to not sensationalise the incident. And you you joked with David Fravor, you know, we're not talking about little green men here and flying saucers, but like you've quite rightly said, you were talking about a genuine unknown, something that you couldn't identify and obviously then was, was sort of investigated. It seems that we're now at a point in 2023, just a few years after your 60 minute piece, where more sensational language is becoming the norm. You've got David Grush. Uh, David Fravor, Ryan Graves, all sitting in front of congressmen and women, very happy to point out that incidents like these and others are quite likely to have an exotic origin. And we're hearing language like extraterrestrial, non-human intelligence and and such. And that's not to say that's what it is or what you saw. How do you feel with a maybe limited interest in the UFO topic, like you say, not letting it dominate your life. How do you feel the tone of the conversation seems to be changing from your 60 Minutes appearance to now, where we're hearing this more kind of incredible language being used? 
So I didn't hear Ryan Graves or David Fravor using that language. I heard David Grush using the non-human intelligence and exotic materials language. Uh, so, you know, I think it was interesting that they had all three individuals up there, but two of them were talking about uh, the aviation, uh, yeah. specifically naval aviation encounters uh, that are concerning. Again, you know, it could be an issue of national security. It could just be an issue of flight safety, uh, that if we can't uh, account for everything that's in our airspace when we're operating, uh, we need to change our, our the way we're doing business. I don't know David Grush, and I don't know what he's talking about um, when he makes these claims about having uh, retrieved craft or biologics. Uh, I haven't heard those claims, and I don't know uh, where he heard them uh, or how to uh, further investigate or corroborate those claims. Um, so it's, it's kind of sort of a two-track uh, testimony that I heard last week i appreciate that and i think for a lot of people that sort of came across david grush stood out for some people in the right way for some folks in the wrong way i i got a lot of interesting feedback i asked tim mcmillan from the debrief last last week if he felt david grush's testimony in a way was too much and some folks didn't like that question thinking no we should be talking about all the bells and whistles but i thought in a big public setting like this was it a step too far to maybe use a lot of that language? And that's all just down to personal opinion. Um, using those kind of phrases really made him stand out from the other two witnesses. And like you say, it was almost like two separate two separate events happening at the same time and maybe two different conversations. And I wonder if, if someone like yourself, if you were asked to speak, would you be happy to do that in front of Congress? Oh, sure. Uh, and and David Fravor and I have spoken together on the Hill in a closed session with con uh, congressmen and senators. And do you think, personally speaking, what do you think, let me rephrase that, what do you think you could contribute if you were asked to speak? Do you think, again, it's that credibility factor that you have this rather incredibly well-decorated background that you've had in your career and that you're bringing, again, those issues? Would it be flight safety? Is that what you feel you'd be bringing to the table? No, I'm, so I'm certainly not asking to go. No, no, <laughs> but, not at all. No, if, if called on it, you know, certainly. And, and again, David Fravor and I did uh, go back in 2018. Um, we visited the Hill twice, um, but 2018 is when, you know, they had the, the recorders there writing things down. And, um, you know, it you know, had the little microphones. It felt much more <laughs> official. <laughs> yeah. uh, the other one was, you know, a meeting with staffers to talk about the issues. Um, but, you know, when, when he and I talk, and, and the reason we did 60 Minutes together, in addition to, um, you know, we've gone to the Pentagon together, we've, we've gone to the Hill together, is that we were in two separate aircraft. Mm -hmm. So he was the lead pilot and I was the, the wingman pilot. And we each had a weapons systems officer in our back seat, but we're able to tell the same event from the different perspectives, from the different cockpits. Um, and, you know, just as any uh, important event that you have eyewitnesses, you want to have as many angles as possible, as many voices uh, remembering and, and recounting the details that they have. And then it, also to give that different perspective, he was the commanding officer of the squadron. You know, you talk about a chain of command and you talk about reporting it up 
so that leadership will know he was my leadership. He was my skipper. He was my boss. Um, and so, you know, the, the aftermath or, you know, maybe his confidence or his reputation or his experience was, was different than mine as a brand new pilot, the junior officer in the squadron, um, as a woman, uh, you know, being able to tell those, tell the same story through those different lenses, uh, I think is important uh, for folks to hear because, again, I don't know that we'll ever figure out what it was that we saw on November 14, 2004. But what we can do is improve the process so that when somebody sees something tomorrow, they know who to call, they know how to gather the data, uh, they have a standard template for a debrief where they can put down everything that they remember. Um, you know, I get asked all these really great technical questions now, you know, almost two decades after the fact. Um, and one of my favorite is, did you see a shadow? I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't looking for a shadow, uh, but I can guarantee if I see something weird tomorrow, I'm going to look for a shadow. You know, they ask, you know, did you hear any static on the radio? I don't know. We were all shouting and, and yelling at each other. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I see something tomorrow, I'm going to have a moment of silence and see if there's any weird noises crackling or static or ringing in my ears. So my point being that uh, what we can do is we can prepare, we can pre-brief pilots, aircrew, um, even um, train conductors. I rode a train recently from Colorado to California and unsolicited. I don't think the conductor knew who I was. <laughs> I was sitting there in the observation car and he volunteered. He brought up the fact that he had seen a UFO while driving this train, you know, this strange thing and, uh, sort of zoomed up next to the train and flew alongside it and then zipped off. And, um, you know, I sort of sunk down in my seat, <laughs> put my book over my face. And, um, and I thought, well, yeah, why aren't we talking to train operators? Why are we talking to long haul truckers? Uh, yeah. you know, cause they, you know, hopefully are sober and have their eyes out on the horizon not buried in their phone or uh, in a, you know, working in a cubicle at a, at a laptop or something. So um, how do we prepare those folks who might be, you know, high risk for an encounter to be good eyewitnesses, to make the most, to optimize that experience? And then, and then what do they do with it? Where do they put it once they've you know, collected all the data um, how do we ingest it and analyze it and make sense of it? And maybe even predict when we might encounter something in the future. That's a really good point. And I'm sure there are a couple of train drivers out there who have just said, yes, thank you for acknowledging us and all of this, because we talk about the pilots, of course, and uh, you mentioned long distance truck drivers. I've had a few call into listener Collins or get in touch with me an email to say when they are doing 10, 12, 14 hour drives out in the middle of kind of deserts and long haul across various different countries around the world they see all kinds of incredible things because like you say, there's nowhere to really look except a long, big, dark road in front of them and, and the night sky. And, and they've seen some pretty cool things. 
And again, people like yourself have made a big difference to how those processes may be changing. Do you still have many friends and colleagues within the military who maybe still talk to you about the UFO stuff, given you can't help the fact that you were on TV and you've done various interviews, you still must have regular contact with folks who want to speak to you about UFOs that are maybe still in the Navy or other aspects of the military? You mean people who have an encounter who want to report it but don't know where to go? Either they've had an encounter or just they're there just now and they want to talk to you about, you know, if I did see something, you know, and, and they want your opinion. Um, I mean, it doesn't, it comes up because, you know, I say, oh, I have to go do an interview. Right. Okay. <laughs> I know. Oh, I was on, um, 60 minutes talking about UFOs, you know, isn't that bizarre? Um, but you know, I, I would say that most of the, the folks that I hang out with are not UFO enthusiasts or, or initiating the conversation because they want to have either the technical or philosophical discussion about it. Um, but I do, I do get contacted by a lot of folks just because of having now this, um, you know, sort of public persona in the, in the space. I get direct messages and, and people who contact me and say, you don't seem crazy. I don't think I'm crazy. <laughs> uh, and because of my job or my, church or my family dynamics, I can't tell my partner or my boss or my colleagues or my, you know, the other people that I are in my faith community um, because of the risk. You know, I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be, or or worse, you know, I don't want to have some sort of retribution. So they they will say here's you know here's my story, I saw something strange. Here were the circumstances, and um, you know almost like I have to give this debrief, and then they they go here you go, <laughs> now it's off my shoulders, and and now it's on yours, and I go oh, thanks. <laughs> you know yeah. what am I supposed to do with this? And I've contacted um, the the contacts that I have at the Pentagon, and said, you know hey what do you want me to do with these? Um, you know, I've got a bunch of Twitter DMs that are piling up with, you know, some of these might be worth looking into. Um, and they've said, you know, just hang on to them. We're getting our, our stuff together here, organizing, establishing Arrow, you know, getting through the, the cases that they have. So um, I don't know, every time Elon Musk makes a uh, a muscle twitch and I'm like, Oh, we're going to lose all those. <laughs> Twitter's going to shut down. I'm going to lose all those messages. I need to, I don't know. Yeah. I'm, sh- I'm struggling on a daily bas- basis to work out. Am I on X? Am I on Twitter? Am I Xing? Am yeah. I tweeting? I don't, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just doing the same thing I was doing last week before it changed its names. But that that's really yeah. interesting but, that you. St- but at the root of it, right. Is that people are saying some, you know, we're, we're encouraged to, if you see something, say something. If you see a suspicious package in the subway in New York City, right? You you say, oh, let me let me alert someone, and they'll get the bomb squad to come, and they'll investigate it and check it out. Could be a kid just left his backpack, or it could be an actual, you know, nefarious package. But the point is, you know, we have a process, and we have a QRF or quick response force that can 
a team of folks that are um, competent and trusted to go and, and take care of it. Uh, when we're talking about an unidentified flying object, you know, who, who do you call? Do you call 911, you know, the, the local sheriff or the police? Do you call the military? How do you get in touch with the military? Who has the jurisdiction? Um, you know, it, right now it's really not clear. And, um, and you can see that there's this need, this void uh, to have a clear consistent, methodical way, uh, again, to, to collect all of that information and to process it and, and make sense of it and then make it accessible. You know, I hear a lot about transparency or disclosure. Um, I, don't, I don't understand it because in my experience, both having served 20 years in the military and having encountered a UFO now almost 20 years ago, I never felt like there was an attempt to cover it up. I was never asked to be quiet about it. It was never a classified uh, encounter or, or incident. So, you know, we were never told, don't talk about this. <laughs> you know, we, um, we said, well, what's there to talk about? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what it was. So um, I I have never suspected that there is an organized disinformation campaign or uh, otherwise um, some sort of attempt to be opaque about this issue. Yeah. Um, so, so the calls for transparency and disclosure, um, I don't quite understand. What I'd like to go into. That, yeah, oh, that, no, might no. Be my, that might be my naivety because I don't follow the topic. Um, or under, you know, I don't know the historical. But I think I think that's a really good thing, though, about having your voice involved when you can in the UFO topic, because ninety nine percent of people I speak to, or anyone listening to this who they hear, have a vested interest in the UFO topic. They're they're on all kinds of documentaries, news shows, news pieces. They have a well known case, a well known story, and they become hugely involved in UFOs through it, whether they mean to or not whereas you've you've quite rightly kind of kept out of it and you know you've had an incident or an experience and that was it and it's not consumed any other part of your life because you have a life to go on and live but that's where you have a very fresh perspective and you can stay very objective when you talk about it as well which can be very refreshing do you feel and I wonder going back to that the aspect that you're one of the few female voices in the topic especially in the last four, five, six years that's come out and, and had a big impact. Um, someone like my wife, who has no interest in UFOs, um, other than hearing me talk about it now and again to annoy her, was incredibly impressed with you when she saw you speak. And she even used that phrase you used. Oh, she, she doesn't seem crazy. She seems like a, <laughs> she seems like a nice woman. You know, she's a, she's a mother. My wife can relate to that. You know, she's got a day job and she just saw th something weird. And that was it. And she heard you talk and she loved that. And I think people like yourself can bring others who don't have a UFO interest maybe into the conversation to look at it a little bit further to see if there's something there worth investigating. Are there, are there more women that you're aware of who potentially could come forward in the future? Because it certainly seems like it's, it's always a very male-dominated arena. Yeah, and again, this is, this is where 
I may not be curious about UFOs, but I'm curious about this culture. And I'm curious about, curious about uh, the dynamics that are happening um, with all the podcasts, with all the uh, TV shows, with all of the books and, um, you know, just the hearing last week. You had Ryan, David, David, you know, three white guys and then a bunch of white guys behind them, uh, you know, a, a little diversity up in the, the uh, representatives. But um, it, it is it is a white male dominated conversation right now. And I don't know what it will take to uh, broaden that aperture and make it more inclusive. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about the fact that uh, Jordan Peele did a movie, the Nope. Yep. Did you see that over? I there? absolutely did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, because here we have uh, a different lens again, looking at at the topic, and um, you know, black people see UFOs too. <laughs> Native Americans, you know, what's what's that history, and what is their perspective? Um, So I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think that we are overdue to invite and uh, amplify those voices. Because right now, I think, the, no offense to you, but I think the white men are just sucking the air out of the room. <laughs> well, I've got a little girl who, again, I would look. I would like to think that she's going to have role models to look at on the TV, whether it's she's watching, you know, the England and I'm Scottish, but the England women are in the World Cup just now. And she sees the, the lionesses playing football and that's something for her to look up to. And, you know, she sees people like yourself talking about UFOs and I can be like, look, here's a lady I was talking to. And it's not always there's the guy, there's the guy. So there's so many other stories out there potentially to tell. And like you say, regardless of ethnicity, gender, background, whatever it may be, if these people can come forward and speak about their experiences, then again, movies like Nope and that kind of that kind of background and context setting can make all the difference as well. And that's something you've certainly contributed to massively, Alex. And and I wonder, again, going forward, I, you've not kept a huge interest in the UFO topic, and you seem to be dragged back into it now and again by people like myself looking to speak to you. But do you think the next logical step would be? more hearings and other folks coming forward and even if it's just for people like yourself to see a further improvement in the process and reporting of these sorts of incidents hmm. so i don't i don't know what we would achieve with more hearings uh, i think that there were a lot of uh, points that were made uh, again especially by david grush that would you know we have we have some follow up <laughs> actions yeah. to investigate and um he mentioned providing a list of the witnesses uh both cooperative and, and hostile that he would provide so that the representatives could talk to the folks who he, he had talked to mm-hmm. right because he acknowledges that he didn't actually see the retrieved craft or the biologics yeah. but he had spoken to folks who made these claims yes so we have a lot of um I think there's a lot there that we need to follow up on before jumping into further hearings and to the, to the sort of parallel issue that Ryan Graves and David Fraber were bringing up rather than, um, you know, just continuing to talk about the issue. I would rather see 
Congress allocate resources via our NDAA, and that's the Authorization Act for National Defense. That's what funds our military for programs like Arrow and subsequent related programs to provide material. So that's hardware, equipment, um, anything from you know, the cameras and the, the night vision goggles and the FLIR, uh, kind of everything you'd want to, to spot and capture a UFO to satellites and networks and, and ways to, you know, once you've, you've given that tip and cue or, or raised that flag that, hey, there's something here, getting everybody else's sensors into that point in time and space to get as much information as possible. Um, you know, being, and this is where I think Hollywood does us a disservice is that there's an assumption that we already have these highly sophisticated advanced technologies everywhere, all at the same time, mm. <laughs> collecting, you know, just gobs of information. We don't. The truth is that we have a finite number of satellites. We have a finite number of carriers with a finite number of aircraft on board, you know, with a limited number of personnel who have to sleep during, <laughs> you know, at some point. And, you know, so, so the actual, you know, opportunity that we have, the actual uh, space that we're seeing and observing at any given time is minuscule. And so if we are able to, to catch a whiff of something and then say, hey, everybody, look over here and then get all those other resources yeah. zoomed in, um, then, then we'll get somewhere. But just because we have night vision goggles, radar, FLIR, satellites in our general inventory does not mean that they're available for this mission, right? So being able to resource or fund uh, either the existing programs or, or establishing new so that they have those resources available, they can call on them, they can divert them um, so, that, so that we can actually snap a picture, <laughs> a good high resolution picture. <laughs> That's what everybody uh, wants, right? Yeah, the, the the higher resolution, the better. You know, we hear there's potentially already a lot of that out there, but again, until we see that put in front of us, and I'm sure someone like yourself would say, until I can see that, then it's just hearsay. It's just someone's testimony. It's just someone's story. And if it's there, and again, that's the the nature of what we're trying to get to, I suppose, or from these hearings, is if this stuff's there, David Grush has handed over a lot of treasure maps, apparently. We just need someone to go and find where this treasure's buried because if he's saying X marks a spot, then it should be there. Uh, but until that comes up, that's that remains to be seen. And I wonder, Alex, one more thing. You spoke to to Dan Zetterstrom recently, who comes on the podcast regularly. Yes. Um, he caught up yes. with you face to face and also has a newly engaged uh, fiance. I don't know if you'd seen. Oh, you've got the, the mug. Um, him and Elena have just mug. got engaged. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dan's full, full of merchandise. It spills out his pockets. Um, he mentioned that you teach critical thinking in your, your kind of daily life. And I wonder, how does a subject like that apply to, to UFOs when someone like yourself is so interested with, with critical thinking and you see us having all these wild conversations, you know, and it swings from extreme to extreme. How do you apply critical thinking to that, the UFO topic? Or do you have any advice for anyone? Yes. Well, I love criticalthinking.org as a resource. Uh, it's a nonprofit and they have 
resources on their website and they also have some books and posters and things, everything from, uh, you know, from, from little kids to uh, graduate students, uh, everybody can benefit from it. Uh, but every semester when I start a class, and I've been doing this for years before 60 Minutes or, or anything became really, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say really popular here. I put up the critical thinking wheel, the elements of thought on the chalkboard, and I ask the students, I give them an option. I say, we're going to do an activity, a critical thinking activity, and you can choose the topic. Uh, do you want to talk about um, the opioid epidemic, uh, which is terrible here in the U.S. now? Um, do you want to talk about gun control? Um, again, uh, a serious topic. Um, you know, do you want to talk about global warming um, or do you want to talk about UFOs? And 99.9% of my students say, oh, UFOs. You know, I want to talk about UFOs because, you know, they're, they're taking all these other serious courses and you know, they're all kind of burnt out. And so here's an, an opportunity to kind of talk about something fun. But then when we start diving into it and I say, okay, you know, what is the question at issue? Like, what are we actually talking about? And, you know, they get distracted and they go down rabbit holes. And I said, no, no, no. Like, what are we, what are we talking about? What is, the, the question is, is there something that we can't identify in the sky that people are seeing? And then separate question, but, but also, and I would argue maybe even more important, is so what? Why do we care? What's the purpose of having a podcast dedicated to UFOs? What's the purpose of having a congressional hearing on UAPs? What's the purpose? The, the, the question of the issue is, you know, was there something there on November 14, 2004 that we cannot account for? But then the, the bigger question is, so what? Why do we care? And then we get, you know, all the other elements of thought. Um, and, and I love this framework because it provides just that. It gives you something to sort of hang all the pieces on. Um, you know, what is the evidence that we have? What sort of data do we have? I think our particular encounter was so, um, it has become so popular because you have radar, because you have multiple eyewitnesses, because you have FLIR, because you have, um, you know, all, all of this uh, sort of compounded data and information. But then what are the assumptions? What are the assumptions that we're making? It's an adversary. It's an alien. What are some other considerations? What else could it be? Something else. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, you know, who are the stakeholders? What are the different points of view? If certainly I come from an operator's perspective. You know, I, I'm thinking about uh, aircraft safety. You know, I don't, I don't want to get hit by something that's trundling through my airspace mm. uh, and not talking to air traffic control. Uh, I'm also a military pilot, so I'm conditioned to think friend or foe. Is it an adversary spying on us or, uh, you know, is it a blue technology? something, you know, that's, that's 
highly classified that we just haven't been read into. Um, but then what, you know, who are the, what's your perspective? Why do you care? Um, that's not just a rhetorical question. I, I was going to ask, is that rhetorical or not? No, I'm glad you asked. I suppose in a way, um, I'm not religious in any way, shape or form, but if I had a religion or almost like a church, it would be this podcast. To, I had a sighting when I was in my, kind of, I was like 10, 9, 10 years old, Ferris wheel type object, not up in the sky, pretty low down, not too far away from us, four other witnesses, um, including my mum, who has no interest in the UFO topic. And I've never been able to explain that. And it would be very hard to misidentify it as something else because of how close it was and where it was so even when all these things out there get debunked or shown to be something else i can always go back to yeah but i remember seeing that and i know what we all saw so i enjoy the idea that what if this is something incredible and we are missing out on it by not talking about it and you know there's all these things that as a species we maybe don't help each other out with and could find all these incredible cures for or work together really quickly and, and help each other. And I look at scientists and, you know, military officials and all that kind of good stuff and think if they just came together, could we maybe find out that there's something else out there, something that's not human, maybe not alien as we understand it or know it, but isn't us. Um, and when I hear people like yourself and, and David Fravor and Ryan Graves and David Grish, some of it's very logical like yourself, fact-based, fact, fact based. you know, you saw something. David Fravor talks about he saw a nuts and bolts object. Well, no seams, but it was a physical thing was there and he couldn't explain what it was. And then you get maybe along the other side of that, that line where David Grish starts talking about satellite imagery of crashed craft and non-human biologics and you can speculate and let the mind really wander and it encompasses the whole topic, which I find, I find fascinating. Um, and I get frustrated with the idea that a lot of mainstream scientists are still poo-pooing the whole topic, like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Brian Cox here in the UK, when I think your your life is based on science and enjoying, you know, science is meant to be, you know, what if, and you, you prove or disprove a hypothesis and you test it, why wouldn't you want to go and look at the greatest discovery of all time being, are we alone? And finding out, no, we're not, because then that opens up a billion other questions. I often get asked, you know, if if we find out tomorrow, if, you know, President Biden wheels out the alien on the White House lawn and says, OK, here you go. Um, this is what was in the Tic Tac and all that kind of stuff. Would you just stop the podcast then because you've got the answer? And I'm like, no, that's when the fun stuff would kick off and more questions. And that that would be when it really kicked off, I think. But yeah, I, I just find the whole the subject fascinating. And that's whether I'm talking to, to Lou Elizondo, Jeremy Corbell, someone like yourself you know diana pasilka scholars who are really interested in the topic um and i think it's important to have people like you who one have witnessed something but two you're not screaming from your lungs that, ah it was aliens and you know making stuff up about it and going into wild speculation as much as i would love for you to speculate on all kind of stuff <laughs> that you can say no because i know what i saw that was it i'm not going to i'm not going to expand on it because there's nothing to expand on um, and that's, I think, really important to have in the subject as well. I hope I've answered your question. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I appreciate that. And I do get asked in so many of these interviews, you know, what do you think it was? I get asked at the Hill, uh, you know, the, the senators and congressmen saying, you know, in your opinion, what do you think it was? And I, I cannot, even all these years later, I cannot make an... Because I, when I, 
when I try to think about it, my mind's just blank. I, because it was so foreign, it was so unusual what we saw, it doesn't fit any other classification or model that I have in my brain. And so I, I just can't, um, it, would, it would be, it would, not only would it be irresponsible, but it would be impossible for me to say, this is what I think it is because I just, I don't have that wiring. <laughs> Are you quite happy to never find out? If someone could give you an envelope and say, Alex, here you go, the answer's inside here, uh, but it's your choice whether you open it or not, would you open yeah. it? Well, of course, if somebody handed me the envelope, I would open it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm not searching for that envelope actively. Uh, you know, I appreciate that there's a whole uh, community of folks who, who are. Mm. And, you know, if, if I have made any statements in these official interviews at the Pentagon at the White House, or I'm sorry, at the, on the Hill, it's been, you know, the reason that we should invest in this topic is not necessarily to figure out what I saw on November 14, 2004, but to make sure that operators who are, are airborne today have a process in place that they have the equipment they need, that they have the training they need, that they have the uh, mechanism in place to come back and, and you know, put that report into a system and a channel where it goes into a database or an archive um, where, where something is, is substantially, um, you know, it's not just like, oh, that was weird because that's how it felt with our encounter. Like, oh, that was weird. You guys okay? <laughs> yeah. All right. And then it's like kept going on with the training that we were doing and getting ready to deploy. Um, and instead of saying, hey, time out. You saw what? <laughs> let's, let's be, you know, let's see if we can get some more information or let's launch some more aircraft um, right now and, and take the time. Um, so, yeah, I really... It doesn't keep me up at night and I won't on my deathbed regret not knowing <laughs> if, uh, if it takes that long. Um, but I hope that we can, we can resolve uh, current and future UFO unidentified encounters uh, for the sake of national security, safety and science. I think that's a lovely place to leave it. It's a very nice summarization as well. And listen, you're, you are part of that legacy, um, whether you like it or not, of something incredible that happened, but helping in that process to get that done. And I think what you hope comes from it is very much underway. And that's only going to hopefully keep getting better through folks like yourself and others who, who choose to come forward or don't come forward publicly, but are working on these things in the background, which we know are happening as well. So Alex, I hope to see you still involved in the UFO topic when you can be, because you speak incredibly well and you're a very welcome voice on this as well. So thank you very much for taking your time to speak to me today. Thanks, Andy. And again, hi to Susan.
That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad-free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut down the screen, he made it an issue. Consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life, consider your